Here we are, May the 13th, 2012, lecture discussion number 68 on the book of Romans. And uh, today, as you know, is Mother's Day. And, and by the way, for the uh, Internet people, it was uh, 42 degrees Fahrenheit when I was coming up here today. It's the coldest May I remember. Uh, Annabelle also is transcribing lectures number 67, 68, and 69. This is the capital punishment of the rebellious son, and those three will be bound together and be available, we hope, pretty soon, as soon as the website is up and operating. But uh, we are going to actually have a transcription of these. We're starting small, and we have many more to do as well. But as you know, today's Mother's Day, and because it's Mother's Day, it's a cliffside tradition, a long-held cliffside tradition, as you all know. That on these special Sundays, like Mother's Day, a special sermon must be presented, one that is applicable to the special day. And notice that uh, I'm emphasizing and repeating the word special. And that's by my design. It's my attempt to convince the cynics, uh, which is approximately everyone, that I've actually got a special sermon. I don't, as you know doesn't stop me from trying to convince you. I am the highly trained professional, and I have complied once again with the overwhelming pressure and demand to have prepared today, say it with me, a special Mother's Day themed address. And I want to fill it with anecdotes and made up sad, funny stories, purpose to make the visitors laugh and cry while the ushers go through their wallets. That is the plan. We are relentless here. Okay, at least maybe that last part isn't true for us or not true here, but I can't speak for all the mega churches. This is a big day um, for the big churches, and they, uh, they're already busy counting. But I do, really, honestly, I actually kind of do have a special Mother's Day lecture. Sort of really. And I put a special Mother's Day title on it. I spent hours on my Mother's Day title as you have come to expect. And because last Sunday's lecture number 67, which is still on the board here, is essentially part one, and today's lecture is uh, number 68 is going to be part two, and I thought I would finish today, but I'm not going to, so there will be a part three next week. Uh, but because last week, uh, as you remember, I hopefully you remember, uh, then the, t- the, the title for today's special Mother's Day sermon became obvious. It, it is really simply this since this is about the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21. question of Deuteronomy 21, the question has been asked for thousands of years, and it is a place where the secular uh, uh, supposed theologians or the secular media takes great delight. Why do we stone, why did Israel stone the rebellious son? But So the, the title becomes really this, if you're going to deal with this, why was the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21 stoned to death by his mother. Now, you might think, did that really happen? Did the father and the mother know that when they brought their son down to the judges of the city, that he, that they were, he was facing a capital offense? The answer is what? Yeah, they knew that. They knew it. It's obvious in the text. So why was the rebellious son of Deuteronomy stoned to death by his mother? Would she be one of the ones stoning him to death? Absolutely she would. (laughs) For you people on the internet, uh, Natalia is 
is delighting in the prospect. I hope it's sarcasm. And we don't have to call Alaska DFYS. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's a good thing we don't film the audience for the <laughs> for the Internet people, though they, they want to know. I think it's so they can notify the authorities. I really do. Okay, I admit that uh, to some, uh, it, that title is not warm and fuzzy and seeker-sensitive, as Mother's Days are supposed to be. And, and it may not seem obvious to you um, how it all fits together, and you'll have to be patient like the little grasshoppers that you are. By the way, I, I love that commercial um, that is about the hoppa. Have you seen the Hoppa commercial? The reason I like it so much is it reminds me of uh, Boston uh, baseball back when I was a kid. And uh, so I started mimicking it. The Hoppa. And my dog absolutely freaks out. I cannot mimic my commercial anymore. I can't say it. My dog runs underneath the desk. It crawls up on top of Lori and just absolutely shakes to pieces. And I really don't know why. I don't know why I brought that up. But that's what happens when I think of things just kind of weirdly. Okay, I could have easily asked this. Why were children sacrificed to Moloch, as you know from last week? Why were children sacrificed? If you remember, and I'll remind you briefly, young newborn babies, right, were taken to this idol that was literally uh, at uh, red hot uh, uh or heated to a red hot, even a, a white hot temperature, and they were sacrificed and essentially killed instantly. That's the burning of newborn children. And, and so why did that happen? What is that? And as you know from last week, the burning of newborn children and the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21, those are equal to God. They are called the same. He links them together directly. He makes sure that you know that there's something about Moloch and the sacrifice of children and the rebellious son. They have an equivalent. They are equal evils. He intertwines them. So how are they intertwined? Why is the rebellious son stoned to death? And why were the people who watched and the people who sacrificed their children stoned to death? And how are they the same thing to God? Because he calls them to the same thing. I could have also entitled today, Why did the rebellious son plan to kill his father and mother? Because he did. That's Exodus 21, among other places. It's a premeditated act. It's also of equal evil to Moloch. So knowing that small piece, by the way, solves it for you. Knowing that these three are essentially the same thing, three different descriptions of the same person. The rebellious son is described in Exodus 21, he's described in Deuteronomy 21, and he's described in Leviticus 20. You can accumulate who he is by going and gathering those three. That is essential, by the way, I'll get to that in a minute. But knowing that small piece that I just gave you, that he, he was premeditated and planning to kill his own family. That solves Deuteronomy 21. Uh, what they had to do, right? If they did not take him before the, uh, the judges of the city, what would happen to them? He was going to kill them, and they knew it. They know what he was going to do. The mother and the father are faced with a son who is planning to murder them. And they know, and he knows, and they know that he knows. And so contemplate that problem for a while. Uh, does it happen today? 
Oh, yeah, duh. Most of the time you see parents whose sons are horrible murderers. I think of the case of the man in San Diego that threw his wife and her child into the ocean after he murdered them. And the parents to this day defend him as innocent. And the evidence is overwhelming. Here are parents that knew their son was a killer. And they turn him in. And they participate in his execution. So recognize that's what's going on in Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 21, Leviticus 20. Three pieces of, of the puzzle, if you will. And all of that raises the issue of motive. Right? Why does the rebellious son want to kill his father and mother? Why does he curse them? What's his motive? What is his plan, if you will? What's his purpose? That takes you to Ezekiel 28 and Proverbs 6, and we'll get to that next week. We've done Proverbs 6 and Ezekiel 28 a couple of times, but hopefully you can see them yourself and fit them together yourself and get a head start. Last Sunday, we very briefly, as everything I ever do is very briefly, and everything is on a surface level, I never get to the real depth of what the Bible is saying. I don't have time. You have to do that yourself. It'll take you the rest of your life. Anyway, I went about the Old Testament doing what I just told you to do, what you have to do, gathering and comparing the passages that are providing information on the rebellious son, specifically these three. So I have those now. And we put them on the board kind of very quickly and describe the Hebrew slave of the rebellious son. But for now, let's just look at the rebellious son. And that's, that's how, by the way, these kinds of questions are solved or answered. You have to go and get all the information. And Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, and, and Exodus 21, 1 through 17, and Leviticus 21 through 9, to repeat that for the Internet people, those are the three most well-known rebellious son passages in the Old Testament. So that's where you would start first. In the Old Testament, what am I applying to you? There's more, and there's some in the New. Every bit is powerful, and every bit is important. And you cannot understand either any of those three by themselves. You have to have the other two. You can't separate them one from another. Trying to con- comprehend the rebellious son, the totality of the rebellious son, which is one of the most complex symbols of evil, a composite of evil in all of the Old Testament. If you try to figure that out by ignoring or neglecting critical, fundamental, vital chapters and verses... Well, that, that's, it's futile. And it, frankly, it's insulting. It's insulting because in order to just try to solve, you see, by the way, all the letters to the editor that I read all the time, people send them to me because they, they get the Deuteronomy 21 and the son is taken out and he is executed by the mother and father and the judges of the city and all he did was curse them. They say, how, how, what a rotten book your Bible is. Well, that's illiterate. All you had to do was go here and here, and you find out the totality of the evil of the rebellious son. It wouldn't take much effort, but they're not interested in taking much effort, are they? Because they have a low opinion of the Bible, and they're anxious to have a low opinion of the Bible, and that's why it is insulting. They want the Bible to be a book of nonsense or a book of sayings that have no validity today or a book of, that portrays God as capricious or violent or whatever you wish. Evil, frankly. They like to present God as a, a being, if he exists, as a being that is horribly flawed. 
And it's futile because if you try to take on Deuteronomy 21 alone, you will result, you're going to have a foolish conclusion that has no value at all to anyone. Interpretation, if you will. By the way, sadly, that's the most commonplace interpretation that you can find in the commentaries under the guise of scholarship. There's no shortage of best-selling Christian books that have a low opinion of the Bible and a low opinion of the person buying their best-selling book. It's a sad thing today, but the Christian church, the masses, if you will, thirst for authors who demean their creator and his word and the godhood of Jesus Christ. Anyway, enough ranting. Also, from last week, I deftly and quietly, trying to be unbeknownst, I tried to insert this in without you really paying that much attention, but I gave you Matthew 15... Right? And I gave you Mark 7. Because that's where Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right? God himself. He intentionally, uh, he intentionally, physically, while he's physically standing before the scribes and the Pharisees, he assigns the scribes and the Pharisees to Exodus 21. He says to them, to their face, point blank. You are the ones that curse your father and your mother. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Exodus 21:17. God in the flesh, the ancient of days, the I am, looks right at the Pharisees, point blank, and says, you are, Exodus 21:17. You are the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21. You are the re- rebellious son of Leviticus 20. He assigns it to the Pharisees. And that, by the way, does what for you? That solves James 2. If you're reading James 2 and you think it has a conflict with Romans 4, it is because you have not figured out that the Pharisees have been assigned the title, if you will, of rebellious son. When you have that, you solve James 2 and you no longer have any issues with regard to the conflict with Romans 4. Gone. How easy is that? How come it never gets solved? How come nobody knows? No money in Simple as that. No money in Romans 4. No money in the just shall live by faith. No money in grace-based truth. Lots of money in human effort. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus Christ, standing before the scribes and the Pharisees, says to them, He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He says it to their faces. Bam! And by doing so, God intentionally assigns to the Pharisees, Exodus 21:15, He who kills his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Ask why. Why did he say, you are the rebellious son that seeks to kill his father and his mother? What were the Pharisees teaching? They were selling salvation. Remember, he has to clean the temple out because they're selling sacrifices. What are they teaching? They are teaching a human effort-based salvation by works, aren't they? Salvation in quotation marks because it doesn't save anything, right? It makes you a son of hell, doesn't it? That's what he says. You run around and you proselytize all over the world. You get your one uh, one disciple and you make him a greater son of hell than yourselves. That's what Christ said to them. For that matter, Christ is identifying not only the Pharisees as the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, but by 
the transitive property of mathematics. He's calling them the ones who burn the children of Leviticus 20. They're the ones who are responsible for that. So ask why. So Matthew 15 and Mark 7 are two of the New Testament complements to Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 21, and Leviticus 20. And you're still in the gathering process. You've now moved to the New Testament. You have got these three put together, good for you, and now you have added these two, good for you. You are on your way to solving this issue. And that explains why the Ancient of Days, Jesus Christ, responds to the Pharisees' strict question of hand-rushing. That's where it comes up. You see, if you've read that, I hope you did, during the interim from last Sunday to this Sunday, I hope you read that. You know that they ask him a trick question, right? They ask him about hand-washing, and he responds to with them. He says, you ask me about hand-washing, you are the rebellious sons of Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 21, 15, and 17. You're the killers of children, Leviticus 20. You're murderers. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? He would respond that to hand-washing, wouldn't he? Because what's hand-washing to the Pharisee? What is hand-washing? See, hand-washing is the the rebellious son, in this case, the Pharisees. They're teaching a human-based, a human effort-based, works-based, tradition-based salvation, and Christ is calling it what? Murder. You're murdered. And the teachers, by the way, know they're murdering. That's usually the truth. Do you know that? Somebody teaching a human-based system knows what? The teacher always knows. What's he know? He knows it's not true. You're not going to be saved by your own human effort. It's ridiculous. He knows he's not saved by it. You can't help but know it. It's intrinsic. It's not going to work. It's hopeless. That's why the teachers are at a higher standard, because they're teaching knowing that they're lying, and they know that no one's going to be saved by it. So what is it going to happen to everybody? Condemnation. What is condemnation? Ultimately, it's the second death. It's murder. The teacher is a knowing murderer. He is killing people as as clearly and as purposely as he can. For why? Why is he doing that? Yeah, it's all all physical-based, right? Killing people so that I can have my reward here. Now you understand Lazarus and the rich man because the rich man was really a Pharisee, isn't he? And the Pharisees understood what Christ was saying. They knew their rebellious son verses. By the way, let me say this uh, as a compliment to the church. When you read the New Testament, okay, it's not really going to be a compliment to today's church. When you read the New Testament, you should understand that both sides usually had a really good idea about what the other one was saying. When Christ is saying, they bring up hand-washing and he comes back with Exodus 21.17 or Exodus 21.15 or Deuteronomy 18, or 21.18-21, when he responds, they get it. They know immediately. They say, hand-washing. He says, you want to kill your mothers and fathers and you should be stoned to death. You're the rebellious son. They got it. They knew why he said it to them. They weren't fooled. It's the church today that's what? We're the ignorant ones that are looking at it, trying to figure out why in the world would he come in with rebellious son in response to hand-washing? 
because he's calling them murderers for teaching a works-based system. Hand-washing is a works-based system. It's a tradition, right? Anybody says to you that the only way you can be saved is if some traditional ceremony is performed on you, or if you have some, you've got to go through some process, I don't care what it is. That's human-based, works-based, Phariseeism. That's rebellious son. God condemns it. Do not have humanity inserted into salvation as the, as the givers of salvation. Humanity does not do that. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't get it. It's, it has to be given to you. You have to believe it and accept it on faith. That's the system. Every other system is death. So the Pharisees got it. They knew this contrast was coming up. They knew that Christ had contrasted them with the Hebrew slave of Exodus 21, and that therefore they were the rebellious son. They got it. They knew it. And Christ, as you know, and by the way, so did everyone who is listening to this. It's the church today that doesn't get it. Christ, as you know, calls the Pharisees not only the rebellious son, but he has, has another term for them. He calls them rich man, or he calls them rich fool. We've gone over this many, many times, and it's, uh, with respect, because that's the context of James 2, right? James 2 is under the context of a rich man comes into the auditorium, if you will, comes into the church. You know, if a rich man or a rich fool comes into an auditorium of a church, what's the chances that he's a Pharisee in the Bible? Very high. So the Pharisees knew what he called them all the time. They got it. And, and, and so there's no, no stuttering, no problem here. There's nobody raising their hand saying, what do you mean by calling me the rebellious son? They got it. They knew that it was a works-based assignment and that they were being called by Moses, uh, Mosaic law to be executed for it. They got the rich fool, the rich man. They got all of that. So there isn't any uh, misunderstanding. Rich man, by the way, explains what famous verse that we've gone over a few weeks ago. It explains the, uh, the eye of the needle camel verse, doesn't it? Let me rephrase it for you in case you haven't already made the jump. And many of you have. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a Pharisee to be saved. Does that make sense to you now? Okay. Think that through. What's the first question you got to ask now? Yeah. Sure. They always complain on the Internet that I don't repeat your questions, so I'll do my best. Well, we're going to get to that in just a second on page 6. So I will answer his question to the Internet audience on page 6. Um, huh? Well, his question is, is he knows that Paul, Mike knows that Paul, Saul Paul, right, is a Pharisee. And he's what? What happened to him? He got saved. He got saved. He got through the needle. How did that happen? Okay, that's uh, that's where we'll get to in a second. It's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for someone who thinks like a Pharisee, who acts like a Pharisee, who believes like a Pharisee, to be saved. How is it? Why is it so hard for works-based people who believe they're going to earn their way to heaven by themselves through some process, through some tradition? Why is it so hard for them to be saved? I want to give up, baby. They want to admit the truth about themselves. That's the, that's how it works, isn't it? You have to come before God what? Humble. You have to be humble. All you get to do is take the blood. Take the blood. 
But anyway, knowing that the rich man and the rebellious son are symbols for Phariseeism is important. It solves many things. It solves James 2. Do you see why? Because James is in an argument with who? Rich man, the someone says. So that solves, if you have a conclusion that James 2 and Romans 4 are somehow in conflict, it's because you don't know how it all works. And that's how we got to the point we're at right now. And now to Mike's question, as an aside, all things are possible for God. Even though it is, it is highly unlikely that a Pharisee would ever get saved, Paul did save Pharisees. I'm sorry, God did save and, and would save Pharisees. Did all the time. He saved Nicodemus. He saved Saul Paul, didn't he? And that's very valuable for us to investigate, the saving of Saul Paul and the, and the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus is called the teacher of Israel, the most learned man in Israel. Both of them are saved. Those are your camels through a needle. We'll do that next week. But for today, let us look at the most powerful of the New Testament rebellious son, Passages, and many of you have already gone on ahead of me, and I'm so proud of you. In fact, uh, Joy's mom, who is visiting again, came up and said, hey, you're going to have to talk about uh, Luke 15, and, and Bill on the way to church, or I'm sorry, on the way to uh, um, uh, work last week said, hey, you know, you got to get to Luke 15. And Supper Dave, who isn't here, came up immediately after church and said, hey, Luke 15, baby. And so you're all right. You did well. And yes, Joy's mom will always be known throughout the Internet as Joy's mom. You're stuck with it. It's like Kathy in the front row and Supper Dave. You can't get away from it. People will write me letters, Joy's mom, and say, Hey, where's Joy's mom? And that's true. Ask Natalia and Boris. (laughs) Who are now huge in Australia. Anyway, the Pharisees knew that they were the rebellious son. They knew. And uh, Hebrews 15, or I'm sorry, Luke 15 places the Hebrew slave who plainly says, and they and contrasts the Hebrew slave who plainly says, that's Christ. Christ is where he does this. He puts himself in direct opposition to the rebellious sons who are planning to kill him while he is talking to them. And everyone in that group of Luke 15, everyone knows that everyone knows. Does that make sense? I've been trying to pound that in. The Pharisees know what what he's saying to them, and he knows, of course, he's omniscient God. He knew that he was in the role of the Hebrew slave of Exodus 21 while he is telling them the parable of Luke 15. And the Pharisees knew that they were the kidnapping murderer who kills their fathers. They knew that they are the evil. The rebellious son is called the evil. Remove the evil. They knew that they were being called the evil, and they knew that they were the cursing, rebellious son, and that Christ was in the role, he is putting himself in the role of the pierced, beaten slave who would give up his life for the, uh, because he loves. And maybe they didn't get all of that, but at least they knew that they were in the role of the plotting, cursing killer. And everyone who was listening knew that they were in the role of the plotting, cursing killer, and that Christ was contrasting himself with them as the Hebrew slave of Exodus 21. Okay, quickly, as another aside, I've been, 
I've been told I'm not doing this very well, and so I'll try to fix it for you. I'll put the Hebrew slave up here. Exodus 21, uh, how am I doing? Wow! No, this is a different time that we start now, isn't it? I'm just freaked me out. Okay, I'm not doing as bad as I thought. <laughs> Go see, I, I can't see the clock very well, and I thought it was 5.15. I'm going, man, am I in trouble. No wonder everyone in the front row is asleep again. Okay, <laughs> I should read Exodus 21 for you. Oh, golly, let's do it really fast so you can see why people are having trouble. You might not be one that's having trouble, yeah, but just be indulgent, if you will. Exodus 21, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if... The Hebrew servant plainly says, I love. Then the master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, the doorpost. There's your Passover reference, right? Your crucifixion reference. And his master shall pierce his ear with an owl or owl. Sorry. And he shall serve him forever. Okay, so there you have the Hebrew servant. This is the picture of Christ. You have the Hebrew servant. Christ is a Hebrew. This is a very difficult problem for the anti-Semitics, right? The anti-Semites. You're going to stand before the throne. Who's sitting on the throne? A Jew. Not any Jew. The Jew. The king of the Jews. Hey, deal with that. The Hebrew servant. Okay, so first he makes himself a servant. That's important, or slave, if you will. God makes himself a slave, and he plainly says what? Plainly says that he loves. Don't take that for granted. What's the obvious question? Why does he love? He could have left, right? But he doesn't leave. He chooses to stay. That's important. He stays as a Hebrew, in a form of a Hebrew servant, if you will, with the marks on his arms and his hands and his feet, forever. Because that's what it says, right? He's pierced. So I have a Hebrew servant, plainly says he loves. He's pierced. Okay? Forever. Now, obviously, that is Christ. And everybody is with me so far. Then they get up here to 20. And they see this, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished, notwithstanding if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. And they go, I get this part. I get this Hebrew servant who plainly says that he loves, is pierced forever publicly. I got that. That's obviously Christ. How about this other stuff up here? Because there he is again, the Hebrew, or in this case, the male servant, Hebrew male servant. I got this female servant in there. I got the rod in there. So let's add it. What is he? First here I got plainly says that he loves and that he will be pierced and he will stay forever in the mist, right? 
Down there it gives me more information. What is it? He's beaten. So far so good? He dies. And he remains alive. Does that help you? So I will now give you the description of the Hebrew slave in Exodus 21. The Hebrew slave plainly says he loves. He's pierced forever. He remains forever as one who is pierced and who is loved. He's beaten. He dies, but he remains alive. Who's that? Okay. It's not a clean type, and many of you have expressed frustration that you say the typology isn't simple. You want your hidden pictures of Christ to be unhidden, uh, requiring no searching, which is the same as requiring no, no thinking. You want them to literally be stuffed down your mouth while you act like a small bird. Okay, that's what you want. I get it. And, and I feel really bad for you. Actually, I don't. That's a fake feeling really bad. Because I know the commandment. Search the scriptures. He doesn't say just kind of go over them, you know, kind of peruse them, uh, just, you know, glance through them. He doesn't say that. Speed read, by the way, one of the great cons of all time. I was a teacher. I actually had kids. Well, I read uh, those 300 pages in 15 minutes with my new speed reading technology here. I learned to read every other word backwards. And uh, I could read it all. Watch me read. How fast I go. Absolutely zero comprehension. I know. I tested it. Search the Scriptures. Don't thumb through it. What do you suppose search the Scriptures means? That's a commandment. You're ordered to do it. What do you think it means? By the way, do you think it means every once in a while when you feel like it? Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. I can't repeat John 5.39 enough. You have to search in it. And you have to reason your way through the Bible, Hebrews 5.14. And, and that is how God has written His Bible. It isn't designed to be simple. Don't love the simple, Proverbs 1.22. Quit demanding that God change it or lay it out for you. What did I just say? That's so horrible. It isn't about what? You, don't, don't go to God with this prayer. Please, God, make the Bible really easy for me. Because I'm too busy to search through it by myself. I'm sick of all that. I want to just, just put it in the microwave, give it to me. That's your prayer. What do you think that, how is that going to work? Badly. By the way, he does eventually do that, doesn't he? That's a post-resurrection event for the saved. He writes it on your heart. But uh, you should stand before him saying, hey, I, I try, I, at least I bought a shovel. I mean, I sat in the garage next to my, my uh, treadmill. But at least I bought one. Tried. Took a run at it. Never used it. It's brand new. Put it on eBay. At least I got one. So go buy a shovel, put your name on it. Because he wants you to dig. He wants you to search. And by the way, why? It's for our sake. It benefits us. It is good for us to search. It is good for us to reason. It is good for us to become wise, to figure things out. Samson is a great example of this kind of typological difficulty. 
Samson is a Nazarite. That's why Christ is from Nazareth. There's a Nazaretic vow uh, with regard to wine and hair. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Sa- Sa- Samson is a, a, a type of Christ. There's no question about it. He's also a type of Antichrist. Uh, Samson is a type of Christ and a type of Antichrist. That bothers people immensely. They can't. Why would God do that? Why would he do that? Because he thought it was a good idea. So therefore, it's what? A good idea. Samson is a fantastic, fantastic type in Scripture. He's a type of Antichrist with the dead lion and the honeybees and the honey. By the way, honey, just right off the bat, honey is very difficult. Honey goes back and forth. Sometimes honey is good, sometimes honey is bad. You have to figure out whether it is good or evil based on the context. And there's your key, right? What is this all about? Figuring out what is good and figuring out what is evil. The worst thing you can do is think something that is evil. God calls Phariseeism the evil. He calls works-based, human-based, effort-based, human effort-based, salvation systems. He calls it evil. If you call it good, you're in Isaiah 520 and what's the matter with you? You in trouble, baby. That's how she goes. So knowing good or evil, that's a large part of Scripture, if not all of it. And then finally, Samson is blind, right? He is without his glory. He is without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's his hair. That's what the hair is a symbol of. You see the same thing with Absalom being caught by his hair and all the other hairs that are in the Bible. It is a, a many, many times a, a, a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Samson is blind without the Holy Spirit. And he is enslaved, and uh, he's put on display as a and mocked. But finally, after a while, what happens to Samson? His hair grows back, much to the dismay of the Philistines. And but he's still blind, and he's led by a small boy, and that small boy brings him back into service. Because Samson says something that's really cool. He says, "Let me kill him one more time." I want to kill as many of them as I can one more time, God. Just give me. Give me anything, baby. I'm I'm in there. I'll kill them all. So I here I have a blind Israel led back into service by a small boy with the hair regrown, and and Samson is returned and restored, and that is a stunning picture of Israel, much to the dismay of the replacement theologists, if we can call them theologists, theologians, the replacement theology cannot stand when you begin to find the pictures of Christ. But there's Samson. Samson is this very difficult symbol. And so is the case in Exodus 21. I have the altar. I have the Hebrew servant. I have the master. I have the judges of the city. I have the wife with child. I have the the, the sole daughter. I have the rod. I have the ox. I have all of this stuff. And it's every bit as complicated as Samson. It's tremendously intricate. And prepare to spend years and years, if not your whole life, on Exodus 21. All you got to do is take chapter, the last of Exodus 20. Take Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. Call me back in 50 years. You won't have figured it all out. No one has. And that's how God intends it. Don't be the typical student who won't put in the work, who won't gather his own manna. The first words of most infants, most babies, first sentence, I guess, would be better, if you will. The first sentence is, give me mine. That's two words. They put them here, give me, and then mine. I still, to this day, on all my soda cans, I write mine. Still do. I've been doing it forever. 
Don't be one of those, give me mine. God's response is not, you're not going to give it to you. You're not going to do it. He says, come and let and get it. Crawl if you have to. Find it. Put it together. Build it. And get on your feet and think and grow and then go teach other people. That's the process. There's no gimme mind. Okay, the definitive New Testament passage that solves James 2, Exodus 21, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 21, Matthew 15, Mark 7 is the parable of the two sons. And that is where everyone knows where everyone knows. What everyone knows, sorry. That is a fantastic parable. And, and we, we've covered it many times here. But this is the classic. And you see, I don't call it the parable of the wanton son or the prodigal. Wanton or prodigal is a word that means someone who wastefully spends and goes out in, in a life of debauchery, if you will, or just uh, immorality, because it really isn't just about him. He's a part of it, but the other part, equally the part, is the other. It's the parable of the two sons, the younger and the older, Luke 15, 11 through 32. So get the lost son uh, out of your thinking, because the eldest son, or the son that remains, is very, very important and extraordinary character. He is, by the way, the key of the two. He is the one that is uh, of great significance here. Both are, are greatly significant, but the eldest son is the, is the one this is about. Because who is Christ talking to? Exodus, or Luke 15, 1. Let me read it. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained. So who's he going to talk to? That's how we begin Luke 15. Who's in the audience? I got a bunch of sinners that know they're sinners that are in a lot of trouble, outcasts in society, and who's he going to talk to? He's going to talk to both, but the Pharisees are there, and he loves talking to the Pharisees. He loves talking to everybody. He loves. But he's going to talk to the Pharisees. Is he going to save any Pharisees? Yeah, he is. He's got a couple of camels in there. He's going to suck them through a needle, isn't he? That's why Mike always asks. Every time he sees a Pharisee, he always wonders if, if that's Saul Paul. How many times has Saul Paul been in the story and you didn't know it was him? That's the question. So, get out of the habit of calling this the parable of the prodigal son or lost son. I think that's improper. It is the parable of the two sons. And both sons start out by demanding their inheritance. Give me mine. That's how they start. That's how it begins. Two sons. Uh, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me mine. And he divides between the two sons. Both sons got theirs, right? So both sons demand their inheritance. And that's equivalent to asking that their father be dead. Because the only way you can get the inheritance is for the father to die. So they both went to the father and they said, give us our inheritance now. Or what? Because it's a threat. There's no question about it. It's a threat. They're asking for the death of the father. And they're cursing their father by wanting him dead. Both sons are doing that. Now the Pharisees and the scribes are listening to how the story starts and they know it's about two sons. 
And they know already who the two sons are representing because Christ constantly calls them rebellious sons and rich fools. He does it everywhere. Rich man, rich fool. The last thing you want to ever say to anybody in this world, if you will, is I am a rebel or I am a rich man. Because the Bible says clearly, those are evil. One of the most ignorant things you can say, by the way, is that you own something. Do you really? No, you're you're a manager. You're in management. <coughs> you don't own it. He owns it. And he'll he'll convince you of that pretty soon, by the way, because when you show up to him, what do you got? You're coming pretty well empty, aren't you? In fact, he's going to tell you that that's his soul that you're using. Right? Souls return to him who gave it. So, the Pharisees got it. They know that they're the eldest son in this story. They got it right off the bat. And they know that Christ is the Father, Isaiah 9, 6. They know that Christ calls himself the Father. And they know that uh, uh, he is going to comply with the two sons' threat. And yes, it is a threat. Give us our money now or we will kill you. The key question then arises, why did the father give these two sons their inheritance? Why not do what? What would most fathers do in a situation like this? Two sons come to him and say, you don't give us our money now, we're going to take our inheritance, which is essentially everything you got, or we're going to kill you and get it that way. So give us the money or we take you out, dad. What should the what would most fathers do? Yeah, the father has what behind him? He's got an estate. Who's in the estate? Lots of people. And who are they loyal to? Who signs the checks? He he does. It isn't a simple matter for him to go. Excuse me, would all of you go and kill these two? We better get it over. By the way, how often did that happen in that culture where the sons tried to kill the father, but the, the father decided the best way to remain king was to do what? Kill all the sons. Happened all the time, right? So why didn't he hear Christ? He does something really unusual. As soon as he says, the two sons came and said, give us our money or we kill you, he says, okay. No one said that in that culture. But he did. So the key question, why did the father, why did Christ give the inheritance? Why not kill the rebellious sons before they kill him? You see how this Deuteronomy is showing up again? I got rebellious sons are going to kill and curse the father and the mother. By the way, would they kill the mother too? Oh yeah. They're rebellious sons. But for now, just note the threat and compare Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 21, 15 and 21, 17, Leviticus 29. Now, the Pharisees also know that the youngest son is a symbol of the tax collectors and the sinners or the Gentiles or all of it, mostly Gentiles. And the Pharisees, what? They hate the Gentiles. And Christ knows they hate the Gentiles. And they know that Christ knows that they hate the Gentiles. So the eldest son, here's what you got so far. The eldest son hates the youngest son. The eldest son is a type, if you will, of the Pharisees. And the youngest son is a type of the Gentiles or the tax collectors or the underneath, if you will, of society. Both sons hate the fathers and are plotting to kill him. Terrific little parable. 
so far. And as with many of Christ's parable, if not all of them, and I think all of them, we just haven't figured out all of them yet. The story is actually happening while Jesus Christ is telling the story. He does that with the sowers, right? He is sowing the seed while he's telling the story. He is telling the Pharisees uh, that they're going to kill him while they are just right now plotting to kill him. It's simultaneous. Try that sometime. Anyway, let's read the part, the key part, where the elder, rebellious elder son, eldest son accuses the father and exposes his intent to attack and kill the father and the youngest son who has returned and repented. That would be 15, 25 through 32. So let me read that. Now, and you know the story, right? So I don't have to go over it or you can read it if you're on the Internet and figure it out. I'll do more of it next week. This is just part two. We have part three going. And how is Anna doing on the transcription? Did you get rid of everything that was uh, silly and ridiculous? Or is, you can put your own name in there. Put your own name in. Anna Bell. A-N-N-A-B-E-L-L-E. Okay. You're not doing it. I'm watching. Anyway, next week will be part three. She types really fast. For those of you who are worried about her and think I pick on her. Way too much. That's not true. She deserves more. No one left. Thank you. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, that he is the father. Your father has killed the fatted calf. The fatted calf is dead. But he was angry and would not go in. Uh, uh, An action of great disrespect. He's angry. By the way, did he come alone? Did he just say, oh, well, I'm going to go home. I'm in the field. What's he in the field for? What's he doing? He's managing something. What's he managing? His inheritance. What is his inheritance? Livestock. How much is there? How many people has he got with him? How much does it take to keep your livestock? For, how much does it take to maintain ownership of your livestock in that environment? How do you maintain ownership of it? You have to defend it. So he's not alone. He sends and gets a servant to come out. Your brother has come, the one you hate. Remember him? You were hoping he would die out there somehow in his own vomit. That would be cool. But he's managed to survive, and now he's come back. And we're playing music, and your father killed the fatted calf and received him. That isn't good news if you're the oldest son, because what's that mean? The odds against you have just gotten worse, right? I have an alliance now, don't I, between the youngest son and the oldest son. I'm sorry, the youngest son and the father. Not good. What's that youngest son going to be able to do eventually? So I got problems if I'm the oldest son, who hates everybody, by the way, and I just lost the fatted calf. But he was angry, and he knows what that means, by the way. He knows what the fatted calf is a symbol of. So did the Pharisees. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out. Why did his father come out? 
You've seen the Western movie. What's going to happen here? His father comes out and pleaded with him. Now, that's very interesting. The father, Jesus Christ, is begging the Pharisees who are sitting in front of him to do what? They're plotting to do what to him? They're very angry. Why are they angry with Christ? He's making a mess out of their business, isn't he? And he's pleading with them. His father, the father came out, Christ came out and pleaded with the Pharisees. So he answered. Notice how, the, the, let's go back to the son and the father uh, symbolism here. Notice how the son answers the pleading. So the father is asking him questions. And this is what the son says. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never sinned. you got to be kidding. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. If you read that and believe that was true, give yourself a big thump on the forehead. It's nice if you write, oh, sucker fish across your forehead and look in the mirror. That is a ridiculous lie. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. Have the Pharisees been serving God? No, they've been trying to kill the Gentiles. They're hoping the Gentiles die every day. I never sinned. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. Really? Anybody that says that has just done what? Lied. So there goes a commandment. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, not mine, not my brother, your son, as soon as he came... <coughs> who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Meanwhile, I'm out in the fields with my inheritance waiting for what? For you to make a mistake, baby. And I'm going to hit you hard. And I'm going to take everything. Mine, yours, and the youngest son's. If he's got any left, I got it all. Just give me a, give me a chance. Right now, it tells you the father is still pretty formidable in the story, right? And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and found. Okay. Now, every credible scholar, every student of Scripture, especially Luke 15, has rightly concluded. Now, there's some outliers out there. I don't know what to do with them because it's just they just simply are trying too hard to make it into something that is happy, and it's not. This is a rebellious son context. But every every major student of Scripture rightly concluded uh, that at the end of this discussion between the father and the eldest son, the eldest son murdered the father. Which makes it necessary then to attack the household and the celebration. This is his chance. But for today, because I'm running out of time, I want you to just notice the lies, count the lies. The, the response to the pleading of the Father is to give these four lies. Think of the Pharisees. I have been serving you. No, you haven't. You've been serving yourself. I never sin. That's all you do is sin. Um, uh, at any time. You've got to be kidding me, right? All you do is sin all the time, and you never gave me a young goat. Well, wait a minute. Just in the story, the Father gave him his inheritance. That's where he's been. He gave him thousands of goats in all likelihood. But with regard to the Pharisees, he gave them great mercy didn't he? All of those are lies. The answer to the father 
the, the father is pleading with the oldest son. What is the father pleading with the oldest son about? He's pleading with him. He's not asking him questions. And the oldest son responds to the, he answers the pleading with, I have never transgressed your, all these many years I have been serving you. Lie. I've never transgressed, never sinned. Lie. At any time. Lie. And yet you never gave me a young goat. Lie. All lies. So what is the father pleading with the son not to do? Don't do it. It's right. What I'm doing is right. Killing the fatted calf is right. Don't do what you're going to do. What's he going to do? He's going to attack. He's going to kill the father, attack the house, kill the youngest son, kill everybody there. And the father is pleading with him. Don't. Don't do it. It was right to save the Gentiles. It is right and was right. The eldest son, the Pharisees, were given the Torah, the law, right? They were given the Shekinah glory, the ark, the tablets, the manna, goes on and on and on. James 2 is quite the same, by the way. That's what we're doing. It's solved the same way that I just solved the rest of them. James, in James 2, is arguing with who? The someone says is who? It's a Pharisee. I could tell that by the partiality context. It is almost literally the same, the same discussion. James is arguing with a rich man, rebellious son, Pharisee. A man who will not bow to salvation by grace. A man who will not believe. A man who is stubborn, who will not accept the fatted calf that was slain for him. That's who's arguing with James in James 2. And if you approach James 2 without that, what's going to happen to you? Down into the ditch you will go, and and who's what's going to happen next? Somebody's taking your money. That's what's going to happen, and we don't want that to happen. Why? Because today's Mother's Day. Let's rise and meet.